2: This is Talk the Devils, the athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. And we're here to talk about quite a lot, to be honest. On the pitch, it's one of the most exciting weeks that Manchester United have had in years. And off the pitch, well, it's probably one of the most eventful and controversial times in recent years as well, to be fair. We're going to talk about the win over Leicester that's got Manchester United and the T-word being linked again. We're going to preview, of course, the second leg, the huge Europa League playoff against Barcelona and of course, we'll also cover comprehensively the very latest on the takeover bids for Manchester United. Because since we last spoke on Thursday, a lot has happened. Yes, indeed. Right. Let's introduce you to our merry men today. Then we've got the band, the full band back together. We've got Andy Mitton, who if he sounds better today, you'll understand he has just realised how to use his microphone. Andy, how long have you had the microphone for? About two years. Wow, we well, do sound fantastic, mate. So lovely to have you on in very clear audio. Carl Anker, hello to you as well. Hiya, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thank you. And Laurie, hello to you too.
3: How are you doing? Nice to have you back here.
2: Yeah, nice to be back as well. Right, let's get into Leicester then. Carl and Laurie, you were both there. So, Carl, I'll start with you. You've written about Eric Ten Hag being in charge of Manchester United in every sense of that phrase, and another impressive display from Eric Ten Hag's team.
1: Yeah, first half. Not so good. Second half, very good. Uh, Ten Hag called the f- opening 45 was rubbish. Um, I agree. But there were two or three times in the second half where I probably shouldn't have done this, but I was applauding when Manchester United were, were putting some phases of play together. Uh, in the last 10 minutes, there were two or three phases where United fans were going, Ole! Uh, as United players exchanged the ball in the final third, uh, which also caused the ironic chants from Leicester City fans when they won the ball back, where they go, we've got the ball back. Because... That's what Manchester United can do now. Not only are they good at scoring on counter-attacks and creating chances, but they can also keep the ball away from teams for two, three minutes at a time. This is Ten Hag football. They don't do it from minute one to minute 90, but they're getting able to play it for longer periods of time and it is looking really nice.
2: Yeah, as you've written on The Athletic, the piece is up there at the moment. Eric Ten Hag has got control of this team and it's showing on the pitch every single game now. We're hoping it's going to show on Thursday against Barcelona after he's Andy Mittanesque rallying cry towards the end of that game against Leicester. But Laurie, what stood out to you from that game? Because Carl's right, Tenard called the first half rubbish. Um, David De Gea was United's best player, in fairness, in that first half. But they looked absolutely devastated in that second period.
3: I think when you've got a player like Marcus Rashford having the kind of season that he's having, and we probably need to have a conversation at some point about where this ranks, if if it keeps on. I mean, he's already got his best ever scoring season personally, but where it ranks... Set against other great individual seasons by other players, you know. You're talking like Robbie Van Persie or or Wayne Rooney, that kind of calibre. And obviously, those, it's silverware, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that's where I was going. Yeah, Ian, if you'd let me finish my point. Um, Sorry, though. They both obviously ended Good in the titles, back, yeah. <laughs> which we'll perhaps get on to. But, so I think, and he was kind of just, you could see he was on the shoulder of the Leicester defence the whole time. And, and whilst United were on the ropes, there was always that outball, wasn't there, to him? And eventually, Bruno Fernandes struck it perfectly. He timed it really well, um, and obviously, second goal as well was was timed really well with with the offside. And it kind of reminds you that actually there was a period in his career when he wasn't really great at staying onside in those key moments. So it's it's good to see he's obviously you know working on that. So I think he he was the standout in, in that. Even though when United have been on against the ropes a little bit, he's been that kind of guy that you can look at and go, he, he's going to do something here. And I also thought Valtvergost is the number 10 again. I mean, I thought that was like a, a tailored, bespoke plan for Barcelona, when actually he seems like, you know, let's get him in there again. He still can't score... <laughs> he's getting chances, um, but he is kind of having an effect. It's kind of fun to watch, right? He's creating space for others. He's he's pressing, he's tackling. I don't know, what do you think?
2: Yeah, he's tackling, yeah. Um, I think he made more tackles in the first half than anyone else. And obviously uh, Ten Hag switched it around for the start of the second and it had that brilliant impact. This is one thing, Andy, that he keeps doing, actually. He keeps making changes that come off and work. United have got more goals in the Premier League from the bench than any other team um and the way that he sees the game and reads the game just seems to be a real feature of Manchester United season.
4: Yep, it's not been a strong point of Manchester United in recent years, the in-game management. The best example yesterday was Jadon Sancho coming on for Alejandro Garnacho at half time and he scored United's third goal after an hour. It was, I thought it was a brilliant goal. I thought it was great to see Jadon Sancho playing well. He scored home and away against Leicester this season, running at goal. Um, trying to set up Wout um, Weghorst. It just looked like his confidence was back. And another player I think we should mention who, who didn't come off the bench was Bruno Fernandes. Set up a couple. And with Christian Eriksen not being in the team, he's becoming the assist king. So if you've got a few players doing really, really well, um, Sancho, Fernandes, Rashford, then yes, United rode the luck in them first 20 minutes. Where Leic- Leicester were really good going forward, pulling that defence left and right. I was really impressed by Leicester. I thought it'd be a tough game, but the way which United responded, Marcus Rashford full of confidence, taking his chances. Old Trafford is on it. it just feels a really good time to be a Manchester United fan. So much anticipation, excitement off that great game at Barcelona. Then you can sort of cover for the fact that Garnacho didn't really do much or there was other players who, who were struggling uh, because... You're not going to have a game where all 11 are firing all the time. So they get the chances, but when they're not performing, Eric Tenog makes the changes and he's pretty decisive and he's usually correct.
2: Yeah, he has been in recent weeks, no doubt about it. Let's go back to Marcus Rashford for a moment. I sort of understood what you were saying, Laurie, in terms of you know how, how good this period of form is. And it tends to help when landmarks are hit during that period of form as well. I mean, he's obviously equaled Dennis Violet's record for scoring in consecutive games at Old Trafford. He's on seven now consecutive games in the Premier League of scoring at Old Trafford, which I think the record is 10, which Cristiano Ronaldo set a few years ago. The fact that this run has helped him break his own individual record, he's now scored 24 goals in a season in all competitions for the very first time, gives it a headline. A piece of silverware at the weekend would help as well. And helping to knock Barcelona out of the Europa League this week would also help too, of course. But the background to this, Carl, is the contract situation. David Ornstein's written about it on The Athletic. You can go and have a read of that if you want the very latest on it. But it is crucially important now, isn't it, that Manchester United get him signed up to a brand new contract. And that is the way to cap this period of form, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Not just from Manchester United, but also I think Rashid himself is probably quite eager to to get everyone around the table and, and go, all right, where's your pen? Let's have a big chat about this and where his position will be in regards to the highest-earning players. <clears throat> Sorry, I had a bit of a cold last week.
2: Where's your Cavonia? It's normally on tap next to you, isn't it?
1: Right here, my friend. Right here.
2: Go on then, have a go. <laughs>
1: uh, where his position is in the dressing room in terms of the highest-earning players as well, I think that's probably in Rashford's thinking. Like you say, this is, you know, this is best-ever season. It's now 16 goals in these last 17 games. He, he is the informed player in Europe. I will admit, when he was in for the first goal, part of me go went square it to Garnacho, and nah, then he just
3: You had to look up, didn't you,
1: Carl? Nah, just smash it in that, the far when, corner. When you're in that form, why would you square it? Absolutely. And
2: I think I, I listened obviously to the podcast on Thursday. It wasn't on it, but I think Rashid is world class at the moment. I think that performance in the camp now showed you the level that he's at. I think Laurie used the words of it was essentially his playground on Thursday night. You know, if he's doing that. At a ground like that, against a team who were well clear in in La Liga, one of the the most you know high profile best leagues in Europe, however you want to term it, that
3: he's world class, isn't he? I think so, and and I think then you start maybe it's too soon, but you start thinking about end of season awards a little bit, and I know that might sound crazy when you've got Erling Haaland scoring a, a phenomenal rate, but actually it depends what happens doesn't it in the last few sort of months of the season as to how much of an influence Rashford has on uh, Man United's uh, season you know success um, but I do I think he's in that kind of conversation now and yeah I mean I'm trying to think of other other forwards that are doing what he's doing right now he's there's there's few you know it, it feels like you know a, like Liverpool had you know with Mane um, just that kind of
2: Osherman, probably, is the high-profile one.
1: Victor Osherman from Napoli. Yes, he is a striker that is always on a uh, number of shortlists for Man United. And I think Laurie mentioned would cost more than £100 million to bring to United if such such thing happened. Which also says, you know, if Osherman and Rashford have similar goal-scoring tallies, then Marcus Rashford's going for how much in this market right now?
3: Got a year left in the summer, so yeah, the, the value probably is getting closer to... Um... A, a number that you know other clubs might try and tempt United with.
2: Nothing, Carl. He's not going for anything in this market. <laughs> What's the latest on the contracts, Andy, then, just to round it off?
4: Marcus is a Mancunian Manchester United fan. I'm sure he'd like to play in successful Manchester United sides and would feel that his talents would be fitting and up to a standard to do that. Uh, the people around him have never been slow to or shy to speak to other suitors. Over the years, twice having spoke to Barcelona, I think they will get as much as they can, as Laurie said uh, and as Carl said, about uh, where his wages will be in relation to others. If he came out now and said, I should be the best paid player at Manchester United, would that be an outrageous thing for him to say? I think he's having an incredible season and it's really good to see. Uh, I think there's a little bit of uncertainty Because we don't know who the future owners of Manchester United are going to be. So it's all right, people at the club saying everything just proceeds as normal. I'm sure that contract negotiations um, will proceed, but there's still the uncertainty of you don't know who's going to be in charge of the club.
2: Yeah, and you don't know who's going to be paying those wages in the future, do you? Which I guess is a consideration more for Marcus Rashford uh, than anyone else. Of course, the very latest on this will be on The Athletic. Keep your eyes peeled for that. And also you can go and read the lads' takes on that victory over Leicester on there at the moment as well. Remember, if you're not a subscriber, there is a special podcast price of £1.99 a month when you subscribe at theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. Okay, let's get into the very latest then on the potential takeover of Manchester United. I'm not exactly sure where to start because so much has happened since we last spoke on Thursday. Uh, We've had obviously bids that we know about. There's potentially bids that are going on in the background as well. There's lots of different people involved. Um, I think the place to start, Laurie, if we can, and you've written about it on The Athletic, is the Qatari interest in Manchester United. Um, The reaction has been quite something, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, it feels very um, divisive out there. I mean, this is social media, so maybe that's what you get in, you know... 240 characters or however many you're allowed now on Twitter. Um, And nuance is a difficult thing to find sometimes. So it feels like there's an overwhelming support for the Qatari bid on on Twitter, social media. Um, It seems it stems from the fact that they will provide lots of money. And that's what United need to get back challenging and have a better stadium and and what have you. Um, Yeah, I mean, so the, the facts of it are that you've got Sheikh Jassim, who... Let's be honest, no one had heard of before uh, this bid was announced. Um, but he is, uh, so his people tell us, a United fan. And there's a picture of him in a United shirt at a game uh, fairly recently. Uh, although it's you know, the exact origins of that, I'm not too sure. Um, but he has got private wealth that he is willing to put into the club, clear the club of debt, take over the club 100%. Um, which is another thing we can get into in terms of a, a difference with Sir Jim Ratcliffe and, and how that actually will work, because it's it's not you know the Glazers' shares are up for sale. It's not actually the whole club at this particular moment, but the Qatar. Sixty nine percent, isn't it? Yeah, that's what that's what they've got at the moment. Um, so that which is enough for majority control, absolutely. Um, but the, the Sake Jassim is, is saying that you know he wants the, the full control. The interesting thing is that his father is very well known, very powerful guy. Sort of years ago uh, in Qatar, he was the former prime minister, very close to the former sheikh, uh, a guy called Sheikh Hamad. Um, so, and he was also called Sheikh Hamad. So, uh, people that uh, know about these these guys, so they, were, they were called the two Hamads. Basically, the Hamadine is, I think, one of the nicknames for them, and, and they were kind of a bit of a, a duo that looked at how Qatar could be bigger on the world stage. You know, they have all this wealth from uh, you know the the oil and gas reserves. Their idea was to not think in Chile, it was to think wider than that. And we've got a piece coming up, I think, from Matt Slater that that looks into him more specifically. His nickname is HBJ uh, Sheikh Hamad, the the father of uh, Sheikh Jassim. So he is, you know, we're told uh, a wealthy person. I think he owns quite a lot of property in London, quite a lot of property in New York. So there's an idea that he does have this personal wealth, but at the same time, where does the wealth ultimately come from? And, you know, the Qatari state has it's intertwined, isn't it, with any kind of private um, aspect of, of Qatari life. Sheikh Jassim is the chairman of the Qatar Islamic Bank, and that is a bank that has uh, investment in it from the uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund of Qatar. So, you know, you can see how how this kind of all works. And I think, you know, we've heard from people before, we've reported about it, that the current emir of uh, Qatar has wanted after the success of the World Cup to get into the Premier League and you know obviously Manchester United are the crown jewel in that.
2: There is an explainer on the Athletic because it is a complicated setup um, the interest from Qatar because of all the different factions and the different people involved and you've written as well Laurie with Matt Slater on that but you've also written a piece which has dropped earlier on today about whether or not you know we should be scrutinising this and looking at the motives behind the the interest in Manchester United. Andy, you've already spoken about it publicly and felt the uh, feedback on that, shall we say? What's your thoughts on a, a potential Qatari takeover of Manchester United?
4: Yeah, I spoke about it publicly. I was asked on on television on Friday night, and one of the first things I said was that uh, this will divide Manchester United fans, and straight away had people calling me a disgrace, saying it's not divided anybody. Everybody wants the Qataris to take over Manchester United.
2: We know that's not true, though, don't
4: it's we? It's not true, but this is indicative of the abuse that's flying around, how entrenched people are, and how divided people are, which was my original point. We saw the Athletic survey, which we made comment to. On Saturday, I asked on my own Twitter, who do you want? And this was before the Elliot talk had, had come through and been written in the Sunday Times. Yeah, we'll get to that. 60,000 people voted, uh, 66% preferred the Qatari option, about 26% Sir Jim Ratcliffe. On United We Stand, much smaller sample survey, the results were basically the opposite. 75% wanted Sir Jim Ratcliffe. So anyone saying that they can speak for a consensus of Manchester United fans is completely wrong at the moment. And we can ask deeper questions, what are Manchester United fans? Who are Manchester United fans? And splits have become very apparent in recent days, pretty unsavory time, actually, um, given all the, the anger, all the emotion. The Qataris were, were actually approached for the first time 13 years ago, at a time when the Red Knights group got together, and it was the same people they approached. That didn't come to fruition. Now the Glazers have been uh, much more amenable to selling or at least getting some equity uh, from somewhere. We, we do not know what is going to happen, and... It's a very uh, emotive uh, subject at the moment. I felt completely conflicted all weekend, despondent at times, relieved that it looks like the Glazers are going. So you've got this whole mixture of of opinions and then a game of football broke out in the middle of it. And you're like, ah, oh, it's quite nice just to to watch that, not be abused just for giving very balanced interviews on television because you're not reinforcing exactly what people want you to tell them, because you're not being a cheerleader of Group A or Group B, people trying to pull you into their camp. You're a disgrace for saying that, for not saying that. And that that's with balance. This is what the Glazers have done to Manchester United's fan bases. Laurie mentioned in his piece, a lot of good phrases in that piece. One of them was the prioritisation of wealth. For some people, it's just about money. Money, money, money nothing else matters. But... This is the first takeover attempt of the social media age. So I can remember really well in 1998 when B Sky B tried to take over Manchester United. I was heavily involved in that, put my own money into that. I can remember in 2004 when the Glazers started to rise and ultimately took over the club in 2005. But social media wasn't, wasn't really around then. There were, there were message board forums. You're now getting this sort of global kickback with immediate reactions and is not a black and white issue. There are so many shades of grey here for all parties. I'm not going to say now one is good and one is bad because it's nothing like that. You can try and unpick at both sides of it. I think that as journalists, as fans, we should be sceptical and we should uh, scrutinise whoever tries to buy Manchester United. My deep feeling is that actually Manchester United doesn't need to be bought by anybody because the club's big enough to stand on its own two feet. It generates enough profits, big fat profits, which the club traditionally used to expand the stadium, to bring the best players in. But the landscape at other clubs has, has been completely skewed by their ownership models. And Manchester United has by our ownership model with the Glazers. I like it to United being with this swimmer winning everything, and suddenly the Glazers take over and they put twenty bricks on your back. It's going to weigh you down, isn't it? Whereas other clubs received, I don't know, buoyancy aids, flippers, flippers. (laughs) Here he is, swim man. Here,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Stockport Metro's finest,
4: fourth in the north of England. Well, he was actually a good swimmer,
2: was he? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I wish. <laughs> I thought he was too scrawny.
4: I've seen his gym selfies. What, trust me, he was not scrawny, mate. In fact, <laughs> he was a bit of a big unit when he was a kid. <laughs> yes or no? Can
3: confirm.
2: We're now fat-shaming childhood lorry in the middle of uh, prosper considered scrutiny <laughs> on Manchester United's takeover. And I'm,
3: um, I'm waiting to see where this analogy is going with Andy. Is he is he bringing it back round? I think we get the point, don't we, Andy? That the, the Glazers of taken away from what United could be at the same time as other clubs have had you know jet propulsion and and really that is an act of vandalism, I think, by the Glazers in that you've now warped the conversation around what it needs to be an owner of Manchester United. When, as I think we can all agree, they could sustain on their own. They have actually kind of kept pace with Man City in terms of spending. OK, we might, you know, see with the Premier League investigation that, you know, not always as it seemed uh, in terms of what Manchester City were spending... But by the same token, United have competed and actually they've probably just not spent it well enough in these years. But it feels like the whole idea is that you have to have now a sovereign wealth fund own you to compete. And Well, also, if, if a sovereign wealth fund was to
2: buy Manchester United or someone else with incredibly deep pockets, the financial restrictions that are in place now, you'd like to think, are trying to stop people just putting endless amounts of money into clubs. Obviously United have been hamstrung by the fact that they've paid huge vast vast sums on on interest payments, on dividends, on all sorts of things that they shouldn't over this time and you know I think the last count it was something like a billion and a half wasn't it pounds that yeah. that yeah. Manchester United had spent on the Glazer's being their owners over the course of time. So you put that back into the club and, and the picture could be very different.
1: Oh yeah. Carl? The sale and the numbers we are hearing being quoted for this sale makes me sad because it, it is proof that Glazernomics works, okay? The Glazers came in and, and bought Manchester United in 2004, 2005 with 250 million of their own money and, and a leveraged buy And now they're going to sell this football club for somewhere around the me- region of 6 billion, billion with a B. True. Um, it worked, right? Whenever this sale is done, members of the Glazer family are going to have a remarkable profit on their
3: investment—seventeen times, I think it is—if they get the asking price.
1: Right, <laughs> Glazonomics works, or or, or you know, and, and Andy's spoken effusively on this podcast about how that takeover should never have happened in the two thousands. And here we are. Football clubs are massively expensive. Manchester United are massively expensive. Like you say, it's quite difficult to get our heads around and them was quoted because. The amount of people who can reasonably afford Manchester United in this current state, who have six, seven, you know, four to seven billion burning in their back pocket to buy a football club with, I don't know, one to two billion extra to to make investments in infrastructure like, you know, like Old Trafford and and Carrington. That is a very small, finite pool. And that requires conversations with, yes, Qataris. Or um, Sir Jim Radcliffe and however... This is being organized with JP Morgan or the Elliott Group investment. These are people slash organizations who are worth billions and also probably spend millions making sure they don't have to pay tax on their billions. And everything they say about purchasing Manchester United should be scrutinized. And it can be very difficult to separate legitimate scrutiny of certain individuals, certain groups from what, other people have accused as uh, Brexit rhetoric or uh, Islamophobic rhetoric. And I'm saying everyone listening and everyone looking into, interested in Manchester United's takeover needs to do their research and their homework and needs to read beyond headlines and needs to read beyond just the flat statements of things being said. You know, if, if Sir Jim Ratcliffe's saying he wants to put the Manchester back into Manchester United, there should be follow-up questions. There should also be questions about you know, his interest in fracking and why he invested heavily in towards the conservative government to, to, to help Brexit happen. There needs to be conversations about how INEOS continues to make their money. If the individuals looking to buy Manchester United from Qatar are coming forward with reassurances that they are not, in fact, linked to QSI and the group who also owns Paris Saint-Germain, that needs to be scrutinised as well. And I think, Laurie's done very well with Matt Slater, with others, into looking into how that could possibly work. I think if the Elliott Group tries making, you know, if their if their bid goes from option three to option two, there needs to be some really really big consideration about how the Elliott Group has held developing countries to account for really really debilitating loans. Right. I try not to bring my personal politics into this, but I I, I don't think there's any such a thing as a good billionaire. And anyone pretending to be a good billionaire, you've got to go, hmm, what do you mean by that? And why pretending to be a good billionaire to impress me? Because ultimately, the reason why Manchester United cost four to five to six to seven billion is because there are hundreds of thousands of Manchester United fans around the world. And they're not likely to stop supporting Manchester United just because their best player has been sold, Right. The value of Manchester United is not the Manchester United badge or Old Trafford. It is you, the listener, the Manchester United fan. And I think you as a Manchester United fan need to be doing your research and not take everything at face value that's being said at this current point in time.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with that because, of course, the statements that have been made so far they are not going to make statements that put Manchester United fans off. I mean, obviously, it's um, a technique that's going to try and get people on side in the PR war of who's the favourite bid of Manchester United fans and who should be favoured first and so on. Um, Laurie, Adam Crafton's written extensively about Sir Jim Radcliffe's attempt to buy Manchester United and the background to that as well. And again, it's another aspect that that deserves proper serious scrutiny, isn't it?
3: For sure. Um, Also, Mark Critchley did a really good piece on how he has owned uh, Nice and uh, Lucerne, the Swiss team. And you know what what's happened there. You know, I think that's uh, worthy of, of scrutiny. Um, and we, I think we've got more pieces coming up on Sir Jim Ratcliffe as well, and, and how he makes his money. I think, as Carl touched on there, you know, politics, personal politics, they they are now unfortunately inherent in <laughs> your, your football team. I, I don't see is Isn't that you part of what's separate... depressing
2: about all of this? In a sense,
3: yeah, that yeah. it is so political. That's that's what football's become now. It's a it's a geopolitical tool, and you know you look at the World Cup, and you know that was something that really really entrenched and enhanced people's views on you know whether we should have it in Qatar in a a Winter World Cup, and some people might say, well, okay, in that case, then um, what's what what's what's the problem with Manchester United being owned by Qatar, you know, or individuals linked to Qatar, Um, you know, you got Man City who have been owned by Abu Dhabi and they've had great success. You've had Newcastle now that are owned by PIF that are clearly very closely linked to Saudi Arabia. Part of the
2: thing with all this Laurie is just the fact of how many layers there is to it. No matter which way you look in this entire debate, there are so many different aspects to unpick. And th- and that's, I think what makes it really, really difficult to have a proper conversation about this.
3: Yeah. I hope that we can just have a, you know a debate about it. I don't want questions about uh, different ownership structures to be drowned out by this kind of vitriolic response that we seem to be getting on social media. Um, I think in person, people are much more uh, amenable, aren't they, to having a a kind of debate about the different issues. I suppose I I just think that a club like Manchester United, the the success that it's gained and the, the global acclaim that it's had Came through a kind of more organic growth. I know that they spent money on transfers under Sir Alex Ferguson, but it 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 it, it built up. He he was there, and they 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 failed at first, you know, and, and he they, they kept at it, and eventually they got to that point where they were the champions, and and that that felt great because it was a natural progression. I kind of have that reservation about if Qatar take over, if you know, if if Sheikh Jassim comes in and 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 puts a load of money into the club, that any success from that point on would feel a little bit hollow. It would it would change the dynamic. Maybe people will shout at me and say, you're talking rubbish. You know, success is success. Stop being small-minded. Uh, you know, there is, uh, you know, ultimately we're past that point now where you can say no to sovereign wealth funds because look at Man City, look at uh, Newcastle. But I do feel like, there is still a conversation to be had here where we can actually say, no, can we just check ourselves and and think about what this would then mean for the sporting merit of Manchester United? And yet, clearly, the stadium is a big thing. The training ground is a big thing. They are going to cost a lot, a lot of money. Um, maybe there's only one solution to that. Um, but I do think that we can still have a genuine debate about what that would then mean for the emotion of the game. Because as Andy said... Being at a football match—that's the essence of what you want, right? From from following a football team, cheering on, having that connection with your players—and and would it change if you had an ownership structure that that felt like it was divisive?
2: I think people want stuff now as well. Uh, that's another aspect of maybe modern life. Perhaps I'm going to sound a bit old now, but like people want the best players now. They want the best training ground now. They want the best stadium now. Yeah. And, and I get it in a way because we've had to watch other teams make improvements on those things. We've had to watch other teams attract players that Manchester United would have attracted in, in the past. We've had to watch stadiums be rebuilt uh, or built in the first place, improved upon, expanded. Uh, we've had to watch training grounds open. I, I go to Leicester and like look at their training ground. It's absolutely incredible. It's it's completely and utterly state-of-the-art in, in every way that I've seen and I've been spoken to. And you're talking about a team who have only had moments competing at the top end of the Premier League table, not the 13-time Premier League champions. I can understand people's frustration. I, my, my issue with it really is, is why do you need it like now? Is it not better to... Um, or is it not okay to have a plan towards you having the best stadium again, the the best training ground again, the best players again? Can you not work towards that in a sustainable and measured way, whoever owns Manchester United? Andy, the other aspect that I think is beginning to sort of alarm some fans is the Elliott investment management side of things, where actually it could be just about keeping the Glazers in control of Manchester United but refinancing the way that the
4: club's owned that would definitely alarm fans and part of the problem here is the lag because the Glazers haven't invested pr- properly sufficiently into Old Trafford into the training ground this is why the discontent yeah. has built up this exactly, didn't yeah. need to happen by the way Manchester United were profitable were making good money I was really proud that the club expanded Old Trafford using profits. Martin Edwards was a former chairman, fans were very div- divided on him, but his the thing he was most proud of was all of those stands at Old Trafford were built by money from the fans invested into the club and it became the best stadium in the country. Look at some of the awful other stadiums around. Look at how piecemeal Manchester City's main road was. There was no coherent, long-term plan. And for decades, Manchester United, while not always being successful on the pitch, because this is football, that happens. No one's going to be successful all of the time. You can't see it coming when it does. You can't see it going when it does. And Manchester United are probably the world's biggest football club. And, I've often said one of the three biggest clubs in the world, but seeing that Barcelona game last week made me think, United is significantly bigger than Barcelona in terms of the global appeal. And just listening to what Catalan journalists and different people around Barca are saying to me, United are absolutely huge for better or for worse. For worse, because we're seeing some of the unsavory um, reactions to some of the news that we've had in recent days, because, The club is potentially hugely profitable, so you attract ultra-capitalist, the Elliott Group. I mean, you ask Manchester United's Argentinian players what they think of the Elliott Group. Because that country was held to ransom because they very, very aggressively bought government bonds when Argentina was on its backside. And I know Argentinian people, human people, working-class people, middle-class people who lost all of their savings when the country went into meltdown. And moved abroad, so we're moving again into geopolitical issues, and it, it so much of it is so unsavoury. It's like some people just want success at any cost. Well, I'm sorry, there are a costs. There, there, are, there's a price to pay for this, and there didn't need to be. But again, this is the glazers of of um have contributed uh, to this. But another point, Laurie made: United has, have actually spent a lot of money. Just spent a lot of it badly. And I don't like the Manchester City model at all. I don't doubt that Pep Guardiola is a brilliant manager, but I think it is hollow. But Manchester United have been horrendous recruiters of top footballers over the last 10 years. A better run Manchester United, which we're now seeing, by the way, We've got a really good manager there. The executive team, I'm not hearing disastrous things about him like I used to do. It's interesting in these comments, fan involvement was at the centre of it. But United fans hate each other. I wonder if you're going to get them all together. What good's going to come from it? They absolutely (laughs) despise each other. It's basically groups of millions of groups of mates who think everyone else is completely wrong. Yeah. Imagine putting someone in as, as, you know, Okay, we're going to get
3: the fans involved.
4: They they absolutely despise
3: each other. (laughs) they haven't been consulted yet have they either Ian no and andy they have they haven't no. actually had that kind of dialogue and it's
2: important it is important
3: and, yeah and i know that yeah as andy says fan, fan groups are criticized they you know they, we want more from them we want more um sort of i don't know, overt statements but they do have conversations you know behind the scenes that have brought you know i think a lot of good change. stuff change you know you talk about the yeah. stretford end uh you know corporate seats being taken out um i mean the one Thing on this, as I think you were alluding to, Ian, is that the Glazers could they stay after all this, right? Like, could, could is there any world where they actually don't relinquish the club? And I think everyone's, you know, Rain certainly are looking at, you know, a sale. Um, the Glazers, I think, probably would ultimately like a sale, but at the same time, they want a sale on their terms, at their cost. We're talking like six, seven billion. Are is is Sheikh Yassim is Sir Radcliffe's bid at that level? I don't think they are yet. So. You know, whether that negotiates down and and you kind of get a solution somewhere along the lines, I I don't know, but it isn't. I I don't know, just people that I speak to say don't totally discount them. Uh, you know sticking around and that Elliot as you say the hedge fund uh, that have kind of offered their services their finance to either the Glazers or uh, a bid that kind of takes over is something to kind of be aware of.
2: Okay well discussions are going to continue on this no doubt at all they'll continue on this podcast and everywhere else there's lots of detailed analysis lots of really really interesting and informative pieces on The Athletic on every aspect of this Manchester United takeover remember you can sign up now if you're not a subscriber for £1.99 a month for a year when you go to theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham Right, let's get back to the football then because, blimey, I said at the top of this podcast that we've got an extremely exciting week on the pitch because we need to preview Manchester United against Barcelona at Old Trafford. Andy, I'm going to come to you first because we know you split your time between Barcelona and Manchester, the last couple of weeks especially. I mean, it's the Andy Mitten derby, isn't it, this? And United are really well positioned to go through.
4: Got to know all the air stewardesses even better. This has just been fantastic brilliant game of football the other night I know we did the podcast straight after the match but I spoke to a lot of Barca fans in the in the the days after and they were buzzing like I was saying it's so rare that a team comes to camp now and proper as it go with really good players and this was the best game we've seen for a long time and I was at back at camp now on Sunday for the Cadiz game and it was like oh Barca are gonna win another game (laughs) 2-0 And I was really, really bored, not least because I missed out on Carnival. All my family were at the Carnival, and I'm sat there going, okay, there's an applause for Frankie de Jong and Gabby. I just... <laughs> but then you can't complain because you're getting paid to watch football, aren't you? Cannot wait for that second leg at Old Trafford. I cannot wait. I think it's um, so much anticipation. So many games do not live up to their hype. The game did um, the two all at, at Camp now. Slightly favour Manchester United because Barca are missing really key players. Some of their best players. Pedri is a wonderful footballer. Gavi, that's like taking two central midfielders out of Manchester United for a European Cup final and expecting to win the treble. I'm sorry, that actually happened. Um, Don't write Barca off. Get behind your team on Thursday. And I've spoke to a few of the travelling fans that are looking... Forward to coming over to Manchester as well. Same whatsoever, like sunny every day, mate. Just take a T-shirt, you'll be sweet. <laughs> what are the restaurants like? Absolutely <laughs> fantastic. You basically you can't turn a corner for Michelin starred restaurants. It's about eight euros as well for a main course. Can't wait from Twitter complaints next week.
2: Enjoy yourselves, yeah, absolutely. Laurie, I love some of your social media from Barcelona. We sort of touched upon it in the podcast to preview the match, but going back to the scene of 1999, the ticket story (laughs) that you've told a few times, you had your picture taken in roughly the spot where you were back then as well. I mean, that must have just been a very special occasion because on top of that, it was a fantastic football match as well, wasn't it? And United, well, they should have won actually.
3: Let's get get sort of to the point. (laughs) They're in a strong position at 2-all, but they should have won, shouldn't they? They probably should have won, yeah. I mean, certainly Eric ten Haag thought so uh, after the game. He, he thought they could have scored a, a couple more. Um, I think certainly Barcelona could have scored as well. So maybe 2-2, fair result. Um, and we'll, we'll do it all again, you know, Old Trafford on... Thursday night Um, it was really nice being back there first time I've been to Barcelona a couple of times but not to the new camp for some reason or the camp now sorry Um, and uh, yeah I did a a, a quick thing with um, Sky Sports with Melissa Reddy and and it just so happened that actually I was stood in the same spot when we kind of looked at the the camera angles and my cousin's buzzing because um, a lot of people have suggested that he looks like Dennis Irwin so um, he's he's quite happy at the comparison Um, so I saw him at the weekend and he's coming down for the Carabao Cup final uh, on Sunday as well we've got a a little group of us um, obviously I think I'll be doing the, the press side of things but uh, a few tickets for, for my family um, so that'd be nice um, I always thought it looked a bit more like Ali McCoist. I'm going to say that uh, rather than Dennis Irwin I don't know if they're kind of
2: Are we talking about Dennis Irwin and Ali McCoist when they were playing or, or Dennis Irwin and Ali McCoyst now because I'm not sure either of those comparisons are particularly favourable
3: <laughs> well the, the picture is, is, is of him from like 20 odd years ago so I think it was oh, okay. Dennis Irwin when he was playing what right. what's wrong with Dennis Irwin just because you came 7th in Mr North Oldham in a modelling
4: competition <laughs> good looking fella Dennis Irwin <laughs>
2: Well, he's just probably slightly older than Laurie's cousin, to be fair. It wasn't so much a comment on his actual look at more the age
3: sort of aspects. Because how old's your cousin, Laurie? Yeah, good question. I think 74. He's in his he's in his 40s. I think he's nearly 50, actually. Oh, okay, you know? so it's not that different. Yeah, then, he's, old, he's a lot older than Although me. Well, Dennis Irwin's probably in his yeah. 60s.
2: Anyway, thank you for that point, Andy. <laughs> um, Carl, let's talk about the actual, like, Pieces on the pitch, because Andy's right, there's there's going to be some key footballers missing for Barcelona. The sight of Sergio Busquets on the bench against Cadiz maybe makes you think that he might be ready to, to come back into the team to face Manchester United. But United have got players returning as well, notably Lissandro Martinez, from that first leg. And there's options as well I think for Ten Hag too. Scott McTominay of course came on against Leicester so he could be in contention. We wait to see if anyone else would be available, but he worked it out in that first leg Eric Ten Hag and he's got more options now to work it out again, hasn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think Sanje Martinez will probably come back in the starting lineup and we might get our first look at Sabitzer next to Casemiro. Do
2: you think he'll be preferred to Fred?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think Sabitzer had a interesting pretty good game against Leicester City. He certainly seemed to enjoy playing next to Scott McTominay in the second half. When T- McTominay came on, he was the whole.
2: I can't one. see past the short sleeves and gloves at the moment, to be honest. Oh, I've,
1: I've, I've always got a fondness for short sleeves and gloves. Although, I can imagine certain United fans see short sleeves and gloves and get bad flashbacks about Bastian and Schweinsteiger. Oh
2: yeah, I didn't oh, even yeah. make that link. <laughs> so it Must be a Bayern Munich thing then. Might have been. I've got
1: a fondness for short sleeves and gloves. I think Sabitsu and Casemiro is a fun partnership because Sabitzer has more of the good Fred about him than the uh, the great unknowable that is bad Fred. Uh, and I think another quick question is obviously, where does Veghor start? I'm going to assume he does start, but is he going to continue being the number 10 to collect the ball from long passes from David De Gea or does he go go up as the nine as Jaden Sancho or another comes in to help out with, with some other midfield stuff as well? But this is good, this is good. Ten Hag has legitimate options in a way that, I genuinely didn't expect him to have at the start of the season.
2: Exactly. And the option even to play Vout Horse in multiple positions is quite a development, really, isn't it? Laurie, you said at the top of the podcast, or near the start at least, that you actually quite enjoy watching Vaut up there doing his bit in the number 10. What is it about him that you that you think sort of works, shall we say, in that role? It is, it's lo-
4: effective, even, isn't it? I'm not even sure he doesn't score. <laughs> I'm like like sure I still agree with that. I don't know. That's what he
3: likes about him. Kindred <laughs> spirit. <laughs> 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 yeah he had about as much success at Old Trafford as I did in that media game works hard uh, doesn't he where, where Carl and I uh, managed to do ourselves disgracefully um, Carl was actually a lot better than me I, well actually, I work hard that's all, that's all I've got I've in my it, game mate. I've sort of run around a bit <laughs> yeah you do you've seen it good you blow Excellent. about the pitch like um, an empty crisp packet <laughs>
2: genuinely that, oh, wow. that is an insult today. for Darren Fletcher that someone sat behind us about 15 years ago stood up and shouted and it's always ah. stuck in my head it's a fantastic analogy and completely wrong
3: and Darren Fletcher was the reason why Manchester United didn't win the 2009 Champions League final so I will take that comparison absolutely Uh, Yeah, I I still don't. I was sat next to Carl in the the stands uh, at Old Trafford uh, against Leicester, and we were sort of like perplexed a bit, like thinking he is playing number 10 again, isn't he? Um, And then he did a lot of things good, and then he, but the crucial element, putting the ball in the back of the net, he sort of seems to not quite get it right, but he is making the keeper make saves. I don't know. I I just don't know what to think, but I'm kind of enjoying this journey. Um, It's mad that United have got someone from Burnley leading the line who got relegated last season. Um, in in these crucial matches, but you know, Eric Tenag, you know, he, he's the guy, and, and he, he nicked Andy's uh, rallying call, didn't he, at the end of the game, going off the pitch. You could sort of see the United fans responding quite loudly, and you sort of Love wondered that. what was going on. He was sort of pointing, and then yeah, after the game, he he, ba- he basically just channeled Andy Mitten and said, "We need you here on Thursday. Together, we can do him." Um, but yeah, he's got he's got the brains, and he's got a bit of. You know, a bit of edge to him as well. So, uh, yeah, if he wants Vegas as number ten, then there, yeah, let's go with it. Yeah, he's copied Andy Mitten quite a
2: lot lately. Actually, <laughs> if you have a look at some of his choice of uh, of knitwear and now rallying cries <laughs> as well, I mean, he's, he's definitely got some inspiration to be to be more Mancunian. If you see him selling out and moving to Barcelona in a few years, you'll know exactly where he's got that inspiration <laughs> from as well. Um, Andy, uh, I, I get, uh, I guess this game as well. um, th- This is just what we want at Old Trafford, isn't it? This is exactly the type of fixture. Okay, it's not at the stage we want. It's not even the competition we want necessarily, but these are the sorts of occasions that we want to be getting back to on a regular basis, aren't they? This is what we're building towards, or this is what it feels like United now under Eric Ten Hag are building towards, having this sort of thing on the regular.
4: It's not just Barcelona. Look at the next games. You've got a cup final at the weekend, then the league match, uh, an FA Cup game next week. Manchester United are still in. Four competitions and it feels wonderful. Brilliant. You go back a year, United was starting to fall apart, and they were out of four competitions this time last year, pretty much. Yeah, they? it was it was around um this time, uh, unfortunate anniversaries. I remember coming out of Atletico Madrid away, and uh, Russia had invaded Ukraine. It was that night when it happened, and we're coming up to to that now. I think United are getting better, and more power to the manager if he wants to bring Valt Weghorst in, if he wants to play you up front, mate, I'd have it because he just knows what he's doing. Hey, I'd do a job. But if you think, United were 12 points off the top of the league before the World Cup, now just five points off the top. I always, as well as doing the live league table thing, which is really enjoyable, I'd recommend it, especially when Man United go one up in a match. Just go to the live league table. The world just seems a better place. But nine more points after 24 matches than at the same stage last season. I think the win rate is 72%. I think they're
2: only nine points off their total from last season as well actually, despite the fact that you know we're, we're only in, in February. Um, whichever way you look at it, it's been a huge, huge improvement and it's just so important, Andy, that there are proper headlines to underline this silverware. You know, qualifying for the top four comfortably, getting to the latter stages of European competition. Yeah,
4: the top four positioning is looking really good at the moment. Of course, Manchester United could collapse like last season. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the manager is is getting stronger and more emboldened, and I think the the players are really buying into what he's doing. So many of the players are finding form. It could actually get even better if you look how he's managed. Almost every decision is made, but the most recent one would be uh, Jadon Sancho. Looks like he's managed it absolutely perfectly and he could become a really important player for the rest of the season. Uh, it is encouraging for Manchester United that Newcastle United and Barcelona will be missing key players, but they're both very good teams who've got to... You know, Barca are top of the league in Spain. Their, their record against Manchester United is a very, very good one. And even though they'll be missing a couple of those key players the lads who they can bring in are still extremely accomplished footballers so good that we're talking about this so many different strands We travel it's non-stop it can almost tie you out everyone's talking now about Barcelona and three days later it's Wembley brilliant this is what being a Manchester United fan should be about being there at the big time I know it's only the Europa League but um, that Barcelona game I I cannot wait for it.
2: Yeah, I think we all agree with that. Right, we're going to leave it there. Seems like the perfect way to sign off ahead of that match on Thursday night. We'll be back with you after that game to review Manchester United's second leg against the La Liga Liga leaders. Wow, that's quite difficult to say, isn't it? Good job I left that to the very end of the podcast. People normally sign off before now. Um, We'll be back after that game against Barcelona. We'll preview the match at Wembley against goalkeeperless Newcastle. And of course, we'll be back, whatever happens. I hope you've enjoyed today. I hope you found some of the chats informative, interesting. I echo the sentiments from the gentleman as well. Do your research. Have a look into these different people who are interested in buying your football club. It's very, very important. We'll see you on the next one. Take care. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Laurie. And thank you for listening. Bye-bye.
1: The Athletic.